Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes, and our guest today is Tim Alberta, who is now with The Atlantic and the author of the best-selling book, American Carnage. Tim, uh, welcome back on the podcast. Charlie, great to be with you, my friend. How are you? Good. I was I was sitting down and rereading your Politico piece from a year ago, where you wrote about uh, January 6th being nine weeks in the making, but also four years, the the culmination of all of the, uh, how do you mean describe it? I'm, I've used the word bullshit or batshit crazy stuff too often. Uh, but I mean, you know, four years of marinating in this and I, and I guess, you know, we're sitting down here in January, 2022. And, and I have to confess the prospect of having to deal with four or more years, more of it is a little bit daunting. And that's a weak word, but you know what I mean? Ooh. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, the the thing is, Charlie, not to make this even darker, but I think that you're talking about the next four years, obviously, uh, or, or another four years, uh, yeah. Trump were to, to run again yeah. and win. But I think the reality of it is, and I've written about this a lot, I think you and I have talked about it on this podcast, whether or not Trump ever becomes president again, I think that we are in this for the long haul as far as the bullshit as far as the, the batshit craziness, however you want to phrase it. I mean, the way I like to think about it is just the, the campaign of mass deception, right? The, 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 the willingness of the Republican ruling class and its, uh, its allies in the right-wing information ecosystem to systematically lie to the American public and to do so for personal and political and financial gain, that has now been weaponized in ways that I don't think we ever could have imagined. No. I mean, obviously, you know, politicians lie, right? It's the old trope. We, we, we get it. But, but and, 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 you know, plenty of Democratic politicians are at some scale guilty of the same exact thing that we're talking about Republicans doing. But, but there is a difference when it is, I think, now um, sort of embedded in the DNA of one of these parties that they can they can run and win and govern based entirely on misinformation and that's the thing that it's you know it's funny charlie you and i joked during the election i told you i was getting ready to take some time off and i did and i've tried to get some distance from politics and yet any other institution of american life that i've spent time covering uh education organized religion law enforcement, whatever it may be, anything that I'm doing reporting on, it comes back to this same central idea of the information war that, that we're fighting right now. And that really, people like you and I, I believe, are losing. And that's what's the most daunting, I think, is when you look out at this, it's not just whether one guy runs again. Obviously, Trump is a sui generis problem. But, but I do think that we are facing a really steep uphill climb here as far as uh, how do we equip Americans with accurate, unbiased information and sort of break through the lies that have continued to hypnotize so many millions of Americans. So why are, I mean, this, this may be an unanswerable question, so I apologize in advance, but, but why are we losing it's, it's, it's not just simply that there are so many outlets to it. I mean, there is something going on 
in the mind of Americans? I mean, maybe we should have a psychologist on to talk about this. I'm sure you, you've you, you've thought of it. You know, it's 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 easy to say, well, you have Fox News, and you have talk radio and you have all of the Internet and Facebook and everything. But but you're right. There is this sort of, you know, you know, despairing shrug. Who knows what is true going on or people who believe things um I, or, or, or even even the fact that people know they're being lied to and that it doesn't bother them. I mean, do you have like why why are we fundamentally losing this war? Gosh, uh, you know, we probably do need a psychologist. Yeah. Um, yeah. Listen, f- from where I'm sitting, and and you know, I can't even pretend to have all of the answers here, Charlie. But I think a big part of it is just there's a a zero sum element to this struggle that I'm describing. And what, I guess what I mean by that is if, if somebody who is a Trump voter and a Trump enthusiast and who does not want to be shamed for their decision to vote for Donald Trump and who becomes sort of defensive um, and reactive whenever Trump is attacked, feeling like an attack on Trump is in fact also an attack on them and their yep, character right, and their judgment, right. then that, that individual is sort of pushed uh, further and further into a, a camp, so to speak. And in that camp, if, if you are sort of listening to certain podcasts, if you're reading certain websites, if you're watching certain primetime cable shows, you might suspect that some of what they're telling you in defense of Trump and therefore also in defense of you is not entirely accurate, right? But you know that if you flip the channel to their rival, to that rival podcast, to that rival cable news show, to that rival website, uh, and you're reading information that is to the contrary, information that is attacking Trump, and once again, therefore, sort of attacking you, um, you know that of those two choices, and, and to many, many, many folks, it does feel binary, even though it shouldn't. Uh, you know which choice you're going to yeah. make. And at a certain yeah. point, I think you just become comfortable with the fact that, listen, all of these people have an agenda. All yeah. of these people are going to put their own spin on the truth. But it just so happens that this camp that I'm in is putting a spin on the truth that I feel more comfortable with and that is uh, sort of more conducive to my kind of political existence, so to and, speak. And believing it is the price of admission to the tribe. I absolutely. Guess, yeah, absolutely. So uh, that's right. Among the elites, by which I mean elected officials and maybe, you know, right wing media folks, there's also a different calculation as well, which is that I think the vast majority of Republican elected officials know that, the, the you know, Donald Trump lost the election. I mean, they know that that his claims are completely bullshit, but they also know that this is the litmus test. And I taped a podcast a few days ago. Um, with Jane Cosen from from the Times, and was was me and Rich Lowry, the editor of uh, National Review, and, and and Rich is was sort of articulating what I'm thinking of calling sort of the fetish of relevancy. That you know why people like Liz Cheney are making such a terrible mistake by speaking out against these lies and and against the insurrection because it means that they will no longer be relevant, um, that they will no longer be able to shape the future of the party, and therefore you know, sort of the rationalization of why people should be quiet, why they should keep their heads down, why they should not refute the big lie, because you need to stay in the room. You need to stay in the game, right? The moment you break with it, you become a pariah. 
And so, but it becomes circular, doesn't it? I mean, that, that logic that if you want to influence the party to be less crazy, definitely do not call out the crazy. If, if you want to influence the party to be less addicted to lying, do not call it a lie. And, and there is that sort of acquiescence of, or at least has been that acquiescence of, you know, if you speak out, if you, if you challenge the big lie, you're just not going to be quote unquote relevant anymore. And so you, you, you keep making that kind of Faustian bargain all the time. Oh, look, uh, and I think that this is a through line of, uh, of the party and its story, um, obviously predating January 6th, I, I would argue that you could take it back uh, at least to the rise of Trump in the first place, because there were, you know, what we would hear often, Charlie, was that a lot of Republicans were refusing to take on Trump during his ascent in uh, late 2015, early 2016, because they didn't think he would win and sure. they didn't want to waste their time. Sure. But I just don't think that's true. From all of my reporting, and I was right in the middle of all of that, the vast majority of those Republicans, they're smart enough. These elected officials, they're in touch with their constituents. They can see the traction Trump was gaining. They can see uh, how he had his finger on the pulse of their of their concerns. And, and they recognize that even if he wasn't going to win, that he was pretty darn popular and that he was onto something. And they didn't want to sort of take the chance of stepping out of line and basically going against what was a hot new trend in Republican politics, right? They wanted to be in line with that. I think fast forward, you know, six years or whatever, uh, not to be, um, you know, uh, shamelessly self-promotional here, but what you just described is exactly what I wrote about uh, in our our January issue when I profiled Peter Meyer, the congressman from West Michigan, who, you know, in his first week on the job, he finds himself fleeing the House chamber and, uh, and, and on his second week on the job, casting a vote to impeach the president of the United States, president of his own party. And to watch uh, Peter Meyer try and navigate the year since taking that vote has been fascinating because in many ways, Charlie, here's a guy who, who showed really incredible courage in, in taking that vote and, and, um, and a guy who I think really does want to do the right thing but is struggling with that very question of if I do want to be a part of the long-term solution here, don't I have to be willing to play the game a little bit? Don't I have to be willing, don't I have to turn a blind eye to some of these things? Don't I have to do what's necessary just to survive and stick around long enough to be a part of the solution? And of course the problem with that always is, and, and you've seen this going back in politics forever, the problem is that once you convince yourself that your own survival is necessary to be a part of some grand solution, well, then you start ignoring some of the very things that forced you uh, to, to sort of um, to, to run for office and to do the right thing in the first place. In other words, it just becomes completely circular. And it's, yeah. really, it, it's really easy for not just a guy like Peter Meyer, but for any number of these folks who did come here with the best of intentions and who wanted to do the right thing, it, once they've convinced themselves of their own indispensability, it becomes really, really difficult to sort of reel them back in and force them to do what's right in the here and now. Well, I actually was thinking about your piece in The Atlantic, you know, does the the really sort of um, extraordinary way in which Peter Meyer uh, was has just been ground down, you know, has been brought to bay. And that one paragraph you have is the last paragraph. It's near the end. 
you know, talking about how Republicans like Peter Meyer want to do the right thing, you know, and they have the right instincts, but they just don't think that it's worth risking their jobs to do the right thing. And then you write, in this sense, the Republican Party is embracing that old definition of insanity. Its leaders believe they could wait out Trump's candidacy in 2016. Then they believe they could wait out his presidency. Now they believe they can wait him out again, even as the former president readies a campaign to reclaim his old job and makes clear his intent to run, not just against a Democratic opponent, but against democracy itself. And so many of them know it, and they're just not ever going to lift a finger. And that was that was the, the extraordinary thing about my conversation with Rich Lowry is is the, the way in which, you know, in, instead of providing the guardrails, instead of saying, you know, we at National Review are at least going to stand up for the people who tell the truth, it's sort of like rationalizing, yeah, it's just a bad idea. It's a bad idea for you to push back, even though they do in their pages, they don't provide any support for the politicians who do. If you follow me, well, I, yeah, and and I I'd like to hear your conversation with Rich. I mean, yeah. because what's what's fascinating is that you know we have this this moment here where um, I, I think anyone who is genuinely concerned about uh, the the future of American democracy without without sounding like a pearl clutcher or whatever. I mean, just to, to state it very plainly. Um, our system of self-government is in a bit of a precarious spot right now. And anybody who's concerned about that, I would think would be willing to sort of press pause on playing political pundit and talking about sort of what's, uh, what's up or what's down or, or, or what's helpful or what's harmful to one's uh, electoral prospects and just sort of judge some of these actions on their merit uh, through, through the lens of, uh, this kind of um, not just this democratic crisis, small d democratic crisis, but also sort of this epistemological crisis that we're living through right now, which goes back to the original point about the information wars. You know, whatever anybody thinks about what Liz Cheney is or is not doing, how she has or has not endeared herself to Republican colleagues, any of that stuff seems completely irrelevant to the broader point, which is that Liz Cheney has consistently attempted to shine a light on facts and on matters of sort of objective truth, uh, not just pertaining to January 6th, but sort of pertaining to the broader uh, campaign uh, of 2020 and, and the president's claims leading up to Election Day and after Election Day and everything that sort of facilitated the environment in which uh, January 6th was made possible. So, so for, for anybody right, left or center to be critical of Liz Cheney, it, it just, it boggles my mind, Charlie. I, I, I can't, I just can't get my head around it. So I agree with everything you just said, but, but you, you and I are, are, we're in flyover country right now. You're in Michigan. I am in Wisconsin. And as we look around, here's one of the realities is that the average voter, the people who are going to decide the midterms in 2024 are not focused on, quote unquote, democracy the way that we are, the way that people in Washington are, the way people ought to be. But they're not. They're focused on on other things. There does seem to be a gap. First of all, do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. Okay. I mean, so the problem is, is that, you know, I... President Biden and the vice president go down to uh, Georgia and they give this uh, really very strong speech about voting rights. It just felt performative to me because they don't have the votes. And it also doesn't seem to match the moment. There's there's something there's something out of phase with the way the Biden presidency is 
dealing with this sort of extraordinary moment. I, I guess maybe it's the it's the fact that you know last year was supposed to be the year of the return to normalcy. As you pointed out, that is not going to happen. It's not going to happen in the near term. And so there's there is that that tension between Joe Biden, who seems to have this nostalgic for a different political era, not really meeting the moment. Or is that unfair? No, no, I don't think it's unfair. I mean, it, this is another tough one. And I think that there's not any one right answer to sort of describe that disconnect, uh, Charlie. Listen, I, I do think that voters are always going to be, and, and sort of understandably so, detached from some of the most urgent political priorities of Washington and kind of of the, of the governing class, so to speak. And, and that's because, you know, people are, you know, they, they show up to the polls every four years, maybe even every two years. And, you know, they, they make their decisions and they might watch some news. And But, you know, I, I think whenever you see like cable news primetime numbers, uh, you're constantly reminded of just how few Americans actually right. care about a lot of this stuff, right? Like we, we, we want to think that Tucker Carlson sort of rules the right wing roost uh, when in fact, the, the vast majority of Trump voters don't listen to Tucker Carlson at all. They, they, right. Many of them probably don't even know who he is, right? And so um, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to remind myself all the time that a lot of Americans are really busy. They've got kids they're trying to get to hockey practice. They've got a job that they're trying to juggle, maybe a second job, and they're trying to pay their bills, and they're trying to just get home at the end of the day and have a beer and watch Netflix and do it all over again. Um, and I think that that sentiment is even truer over the last couple of years because of COVID and, and all of the disruption with school life and work life, family life, all of that, right? So I, I think it's just to say that uh, January 6th was for anybody in and around politics, especially anybody who's spending time in that building. I spent years of my life working in the Capitol building. Uh, very upsetting and 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 very intrusive, and almost it felt like a moment of of kind of um, invasion or betrayal, and really was harmful and felt just like an existential threat, I guess. And that's why it still carries such a sting for a lot of us. I do think for the average American, even the average American who was really bothered by it in the moment, and maybe who has stayed. Uh, somewhat clued into uh, what's happened since with the committee and the investigation, everything else. They're just not living and dying with this stuff. And they don't perceive it to be the sort of grave existential threat to American democracy that maybe you and I view it as. Right. Which, which is why um, I think it's important for somebody like Joe Biden to uh, to get the other issues right. If if you're if you are going to protect democracy, just simply talking about democracy isn't going to do it. Um, I, I have my, my newsletter today, you know, suggests, you know, using the very dated cliched term of sister soldier moment that at some point he's going to have to speak out against, uh, he's going to have to address the issues that are really cutting out there. Like for example, the school closures and the way, and the way that that is, is polling around the country, the way that, that that has just mobilized American parents. And at some point he's going to have to speak out against the teachers unions. And again, people may say, well, that's a distraction or no, this is, you know, you are not going to be able to advance your agenda unless you shore up your credibility on the issues that that are right now front and center to the American public. So, yeah, and obviously you mentioned the coronavirus. So let's talk about, can we talk about COVID and all the things that are going on with COVID? Oh, yeah. Because I'm I'm confused about a lot of things, and I think a lot of Americans are. But before we get into all of that, I just wanted to play for you 
the soundbite from yesterday's hearings where uh, Dr. Fauci was, uh, let's say, was under the gun with what did he call one one senator a moron, you know, who had asked him uh, about his financial records and <laughs> implying that big tech was hiding them. And of course, that's not true. They're you know, completely easily available and everything. And it's just, that was one of the moments where I, you know, how stupid some of these guys are. And unfortunately, I suppose Fauci was caught on open mic calling him a moron. He was completely accurate. The more viral moment was taking on Rand Paul. And this, I think, goes back to what we were talking about initially, this this age of of disinformation, weaponized disinformation. And I just want to play this clip and to get your reaction on the other side. This is Dr. Anthony Fauci really um, pushing back against Rand Paul's demagoguery on this. The last time we had a committee or the time before, he was accusing me of being responsible for the death of five, four to five million people, which is really irresponsible. And I say, why is he doing that? There are two reasons why that's really bad. The first is it distracts from what we're all trying to do here today is get our arms around the epidemic and the pandemic that we're dealing with, not something imaginary. Number two, what happens when he gets out and accuses me of things that are completely untrue is that all of a sudden that kindles the crazies out there and I have life the threats upon my life, harassment of my family and my children with obscene phone calls because people are lying about me. Now, you know, I guess you could say, well, that's the way it goes. I can take the hit. Well, it, it, it makes a difference because, as some of you may know, just about three or four weeks ago on December 21st, a person was arrested who was on their way from Sacramento to Washington, D.C. at a speed stop in Iowa. And they asked, the police asked him where he was going, and he was going to Washington, D.C., to kill Dr. Fauci. And they found in his car an AR-15 and multiple magazines of ammunition because he thinks that maybe I'm killing people. So I ask myself, why would Senator want to do this? So go to Rand Paul website and you see fire Dr. Fauci with a little box that says, Contribute here. You can do $5, $10, $20, $100. So you are making a catastrophic epidemic for your political gain. Wow. So your thoughts, Tim Alberta? Well, I, so I should preface this, Charlie, by, by saying that I, as a reporter and I, as a citizen, have had frustrations with uh, Fauci, with the CDC, with some of the leading voices of uh, sort of uh, healthcare authorities in this country over the last couple of years for some of the mixed messaging, some of the inconsistency. Those are, you know, good faith frustrations, good faith criticisms. I don't think anybody who is in a position uh, like Dr. Fauci is in should be impervious to to those criticisms. Mm -hmm. Uh, That having been said, uh, he is just hitting the nail directly on the head in filleting Rand Paul the way that he did there in that, in that testimony. And, and, and I think the worst part about it, uh, honestly, Charlie, is that Rand Paul probably didn't feel an ounce of shame or an no, ounce of remorse, none, right? Because, none. because, because that's what, 
these people do. And and I don't and listen, again, politicians lie, we know this, politicians lie. But the willingness to not only uh, spread those sorts of, of dangerous uh, falsehoods about somebody like Dr. Fauci, who, again, for all of his faults, is doing his best to try and you know save lives here, right? To also be fundraising off of it yeah. is just so grotesque. And yet, I got to be honest, uh, Charlie, and I'm sure you had the same reaction when, when you saw that clip. Were you even a little bit surprised by it? Right. Like, no. we, we, you know, this is just this is what they do. We're, we're, we're sort of accustomed to this by now. I saw some criticism that, you know, Fauci shouldn't, you know, have allowed himself to get into that this kind of a, a fight that he should be above it. But at some point, you do need to push back against this. You do need to to have those those moments. And and you're right. But it, it is the, the way in which you have the intertwining of the disinformation the willingness to perhaps incite or play around with um, violence or the, you know, the, the fact that there are unstable people who might actually believe and take seriously your lies and then the cynical exploitation of it. Um, and, and I think this is also, you know, one of, you know, we go back to the why we're losing the information war because there is this shamelessness about it and because it's so easy to monetize it. It's so easy. The, the incentive structure right now is the more outrageous you are the bigger your haul is going to be. Look at Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'm guessing yep. that Rand Paul probably raised a ton of money off that yesterday. Yep. Well, so at the risk of going down a, a little mm-hmm. bit of a rabbit hole, let me let me just say something that comes to mind, Charlie. So, uh, and again, Rand Paul is not unique in his willingness no. uh, and shamelessness uh, in deceiving people here. But I'm reminded of a story I worked on, I don't know, three or four years ago about the sort of uh, the Paul family operation and the network of individuals they'd built out uh, that, that was doing a lot of organizing and fundraising and sort of grassroots mobilizing on their behalf. And I remember reporting on and doing some digging and, and, and writing about just how sort of uniquely shameless in making some of these fundraising appeals that were based on complete and utter lies. So, so there was one uh, email that had gone out from, I believe it was from Ron Paul at the time, or it might have been from the Campaign for Liberty, which was sort of the, the Paul mm-hmm. family fundraising operation. And this email said that it said, you know, dear Patriot, uh, we've just received a tip from one of our Senate insiders that Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham and Diane Feinstein have been huddling in private and are preparing a bill that would uh, take away uh, hundreds of millions of (laughs) weapons that are currently on the streets, right? Something to that effect. And this one email went absolutely, just this one email solicitation, Charlie, and I know that this is sort of a, a, a small window into this bigger problem, but this was four or five years ago. And this one email it went absolutely bananas. Mm-hmm. It, like it raised millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And it was based on just a complete and utter falsehood. There was, I mean, not a shred. I, I remember talking with some of the people in Graham's office, Rubio's office, and they're they're looking around like you couldn't even try to find one person who could even come up with any sort of a good faith explanation for, oh, this could have been a miscommunication or no, oh, they might have read into some <laughs> amendment the wrong way. No, no, no. This was just a lie. It was just not true. There was not a whole ounce of truth yeah. to it. And yet 
they were more than willing to put it out there in the in the uh, pursuit of of raising money. And and that's just the way that this game has been played for a long time. And the stakes are now so much higher. And yet the fact that the stakes are so much higher is not deterring any of these bad actors. So let me follow you down this rabbit hole because I am old enough uh, to remember when the crackpots, uh, the, 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 the crackpot faction in the party that I remember being focused on were the, the Paulites, that they were the, the folks that, that were out there with these weird conspiracy theories and sort of bizarre ideas. But they seemed like they were sort of off in a corner. I mean, they would show up at, at CPAC and, you know, ran, you know, Ron Paul would always win the, the straw vote and things like that. But, but they were the, you know, and they, many of them were, were hyper-libertarian. Many of them had very, you know, interesting ideas about, about foreign policy. But it's interesting the way in which that group has now morphed into the MAGA world. I mean, it's it's just you know, watching them and go from really kind of a small faction of crazies in the party to now being very, very comfortable in the in the, you know, the, the dominant the dominant groups in the Republican Party. And that's I mean, it, it's I I actually used to rail against um, I, I did a piece, I think it was back in like 2013, you know, time to confront the crackpots, you know, the people who are talking about secession and how the Republican Party. Needed. I wasn't talking about Donald Trump or Donald Trumpites. I was talking about the kind of, you know, Ron Paul, Rand Paul types. And so, yeah, they laid the groundwork in many ways. And so it is familiar if you were kind of remember what they were. But now to hear it coming out of the mouth of, I don't know, the former president of the United States seems to be a whole different category of awful. Well, yeah, it does. And, and what you're describing is, I think, one of the central phenomenons of, of this era in American politics, which is the merging of the fringe and the mainstream, right? We, we used to be, uh, it, it used to be really easy and almost elementary to sort of distinguish the fringe of the Republican yeah, exactly. Party from right. its mainstream, right? It, yeah. it, it was not difficult. That was, a, that was a thing, yes. Yeah, it was a thing. And, yeah. and, and, and where we are now, I mean, think about this, Charlie, like in the run-up to January 6th of 2021, you had the Texas Republican Party chairman talking openly about secession, seceding from the union. You had the Arizona Republican Party uh, tweeting about martyrdom, in, like uh, daring people, asking voters, "Are you willing to die in this fight?" Right over, over, over the election results. Um, you had leading party officials going on talk radio, going on cable news, saying things that were so incredibly outlandish, and and. And I think the net result of all of it, Charlie, was that th there's a verse in the Bible where they talk about uh, how uh, there's so much sin and so much wrongdoing that the people have forgotten how to blush. And that's how that's <laughs> right. that's how I feel. We have that like we in exactly. in around politics, we have forgotten how to blush. There was so much insanity, so much manic, paranoid, hyperbolic nonsense packed into such a small window between sort of, uh, you know, November 6th and January 6th that we couldn't even separate the fringe from the mainstream anymore. And I think it's, I think it's largely because those two had become inseparable. There was so much craziness coming from the mainstream 
that the fringe itself was no longer visible. Oh, I think that's exactly right. Okay, so uh, since we're on the subject of COVID and vaccination and uh, et, et, et cetera, I want to get your take on this um, kind of an interesting, a slightly surprising moment that occurred last night. So the former president goes on OAN, which is one of his favorite networks, which is uh, um, actually quite a bit crazier even than Fox News, although that's you know, it's, that's harder and harder to do to become crazier. But he's talking about, he's asked about whether he took a, a booster. And this is what he had to say. He takes a shot at unnamed other politicians. Let's play that. Well, I've taken it. I've had the booster. Many politicians, I watched a couple of politicians be interviewed. And one of the questions was, did you get the booster? Because they had the vaccine. And they, oh, they're answering it like, in other words, the answer is yes, but they don't want to say it because they're gutless. You got to say it, whether you had it or not, say it. But the fact is that I think the vaccine has saved tens of millions of people throughout the world. Uh, I have had absolutely no side effects. I've had it like other people have had it. Nothing special. Okay, so, I mean, I, we, sh- we should note that he goes on later to say the children don't need to be vaccinated, so he's still, I mean, Donald Trump is still Donald Trump. But um, what do you make of the fact that he's calling out politicians who won't say that they got the booster and calling them gutless? Shot at Ron DeSantis from Florida? What's happening here? Uh, yeah, probably a <laughs> yeah. shot at DeSantis, probably a shot at uh, yeah, any number of other uh, Republican hopefuls for 2024 who may view Trump's talk about vaccines as a potential uh, chink in his armor, as 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 an opening to attack him from his own right flank, uh, which is hilarious, Charlie. If you if you step back and think about this, imagine a world in which Donald Trump sort of seeds his vice grip on the American political right because of his willingness to embrace a <laughs> vaccine that has, in fact saved millions of lives around the world, right? Like that's, that's amazing to think about. And yet I don't think it's probable, but I think it's in the realm of possibility. I, I, I do think going back to uh, the O'Reilly event where Trump got some booze for saying he'd gotten the booster yeah, to yeah. then Candace Owens attacking him to the OAN folks, bringing him on now and pressing him on it. Look, this is this, you can connect these dots here and see pretty clearly where this could be headed. The anti-vax sentiment is not a, uh, at least the, the sort of emphatic anti-vax sentiment, is not a majority position in the Republican Party. But in the Republican primary season, uh, in which only you know 15 to 25 percent of the most committed voters are turning out to vote in primaries, and well, I don't know, that's a different story. So this is, I think this is actually a, a real vulnerability for Trump politically, and he knows it. And what he's trying to do here, I think, is is sort of tackle it head on and and try and try and win over some hearts and minds here by by saying look you trust me on everything else you need to trust me on this and and in some sort of strange twisted way this could actually prove to be uh, the most telling test of, of Trump's hold on the Republican base is whether or not it, because if if nobody if if anybody can convince vaccine skeptics. Of, of the vaccine's efficacy and of the fact that it doesn't have side effects and that it's not killing people, it's not putting a 5G chip in your arm, anything else, then you would think it would be Donald Trump, right? And so you we're going to find out. 
So why is he taking shots at Ron DeSantis, who has been as Trumpy as Trump, you know, as as any governor in the the country? What what is what is that about? Well, uh, look, I, Trump's political instincts are, are are pretty good, right? And I think that he understands that DeSantis has not only has DeSantis been on the ascent these last couple of years um, politically. And, and you can see, you, you sort of pick that up anecdotally, but you also see it in some polling numbers. You certainly pick it up when you talk to Republican fundraising folks. You know, he's a hot ticket and anywhere he goes, people want to meet DeSantis, get their picture with DeSantis. He is, he is the sort of new uh, it item in, in Republican politics. Not only that, Charlie, but DeSantis also has not bent the knee to Trump in a sort of explicit way like Nikki Haley has and like some others mm-hmm. have. In other words, whereas other Republicans have gone out of their way to say, no, I wouldn't dream of challenging Donald Trump. Uh, if, if he runs again in 2024, then I would happily step aside because this is his party until he says otherwise. DeSantis hasn't done that. And, and Trump obviously has taken notice. And so I think that Trump is hearing footsteps a little bit and he knows that DeSantis probably more than any other Republican at this point, could be a live, you know, a, a live option for a lot of Republican voters come 2024. And, and again, I think he's trying to, to shore up that vulnerability he may have. I think you're right. Okay, one one more soundbite that is perhaps more representative of the Donald Trump that we have watched over the last four or five years. Amazingly, he went on NPR with Steve Inskeep, who's been trying for years to get him to come on. It was supposed to be a 15-minute interview. It uh, it ends rather abruptly here. Um, Donald Trump hangs up when he's when he's pressed on it. But this is kind of interesting because almost every interview that he's given up until yesterday was with, you know, friendly uh, media types, you know, the Greg Gutfields of the world or the OANs or Newsmax, etc. So he's gone out of the goes out of the bubble for the first time, really, it feels like in years. And this is what happened when he sat down with Steve Inskeep. Obviously, he didn't sit down. He's 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 by the phone from Mar-a-Lago. Let's play that. Mr. President, let me ask you this question. How come Biden couldn't attract 20 people for a crowd? How come when he went to speak in different <laughs> locations, nobody came to watch? But all of a sudden he got 80 million votes. If you if you forgive me, it may be because nobody the election was that. about you. If I can just move on to ask, are you telling Republicans in 2022 that they must press your case on the past election in order to get your endorsement? Mm-hmm. Is that an absolute? They're going to do whatever they want to do, whatever they have to do, they're going to do. But the ones that are smart, the ones that know. You take a look at, again, you take a look at how Carrie Lake is doing, running for governor. She's very big on this issue. She's leading by a lot. People have no idea how big this issue is, and they don't want it to happen again. It shouldn't be allowed to happen, and they don't want it to happen again. And the only way it's not going to happen again is you have to solve the problem of the presidential rigged election of 2020. Uh, Mr. So, Steve, President, if I well, 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 I one more it. question. I want to ask about a court hearing yesterday on January 6th. Judge Amit Mehta, he's gone. Okay. He hangs up. So, Tim Alberta, here, here's Mr. Strength, who fights all the time, who, you know, when he's confronted with questions about this, runs away. Interesting. Yeah. When you only schedule home games, Charlie, you're not equipped to play on the road in the uh, in the in the conditions outside of of uh, of your dome. Uh, Yeah, that's that's I mean, what's what's striking about that is just his tone. Uh, He sounds sort of frantic from the jump. uh, And 
which which is you know uh, Steve Inskeep uh, is, is um, you know a, a perfectly sort of polite uh, yeah you know your your run of the mill NPR interviewer so. I don't know. I'm surprised that Trump would even give that interview. But you think that if he was willing to give it, that he might actually stay and have a little bit of fun with it and get his shots in. But um, he seemed to be running scared from the jump. There. So you make an interesting point here. And and I, and I, and I think it, it's it's worth emphasizing that that, yes, having this alternative reality bubble has been really very, very comfortable for many Republicans, not just Donald Trump, because they are always playing a home game. But after a while, it does make you isolated and it does you know mean that you are not going necessarily that you will be ill prepared for actually dealing with the real world or outside of the bubble so uh, this is one of the the double edged sword i think of of having these alternative realities tim alberta thank you so much for joining me tim is a staff writer for the atlantic magazine the author of the best selling book american carnage great to have you back on the podcast tim Charlie, my pleasure, man. Stay healthy. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again.